This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the morning of July 29th, 1981, the world, well, that is to say a television audience of 750 million people at least, were intently watching the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in London as the 20-year-old Lady Diana Spencer alighted from her carriage and ascended the cathedral steps to walk down the aisle to marry then Prince Charles. When Charles and Diana signed the registry in a chapel outside of public view, a striking soprano in her late 30s stepped before the cameras, and as the orchestra launched into a jubilant Handelian aria, she began to sing. Kiri Tekanoa, a deeply gifted lyric soprano from New Zealand, had already sung on the world's great stages, but with this aria, Let the Bright Seraphim from Handel's Oratorio Samson Sung at this particular occasion, she became known to the wider world, and she became one of opera's most sought-after singers and an even brighter and more dazzling star. And while the registers are being signed, we shall hear the Bath Choir, the Bath Choir of which Prince Charles is president, musicians from the orchestras, the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, the English Chamber Orchestra, the Philharmonia Orchestra, with Miss Kiri Tikanawa, Soprano, John Wallace, solo trumpet, and John Scott, organ continuer. In the last aria and chorus from Samson by Handel, let the bright seraphim in burning row. That same joyful, exuberant aria served another soprano very well, too, just over a hundred years before. In June of 1877, a completely unknown soprano, barely out of conservatory training and early in her career, stepped onto a stage in Boston to deliver the very same aria. Her silvery voice rising above the sumptuous chords of Handel's accompaniment. Concert announcements proclaimed the concert would feature military bands followed by eminent vocal talent, which actually even included a chorus of 1,100 singers. The concert program listed our young soloist as Miss Lillian A. Norton, gifted soprano. And indeed she was. The audience that day, which included President Rutherford B. Hayes, thought so too. 
The voice that Boston audiences heard that day was, in some ways, to define a generation of singers and to define perhaps what was going to become the American opera singer of the Gilded Age. Lillian's was the first purely American soprano to really become a star voice and compete with names like Adelina Patti and Christine Nielsen. But she had to change her name, go to Europe for training and experience, and return to America only to travel the newly opened country, showing audiences just what a star really was. Her name and image, though perhaps little known today, found their way into popular advertising, inspired some of the newest fashions, and became synonymous with the rarest of titles, Diva. But all of this may have been a surprise, perhaps even to Lillian herself. The down-to-earth, pragmatic Lillian Norton wasn't ever supposed to be a singer at all. In order to fully share Lillian's story, the episode will be presented in two parts. The second part will drop next week. Today, in part one, I'll be sharing Lillian's extraordinary story. Next week, I'll be joined in conversation by one of today's most exciting international opera stars, mezzo-soprano Kate Aldrich, who shares a surprising connection to the soprano that became Madame Lillian Nordica. So make sure to join us next week as well for the continuation of Lillian Nordica, the making of a Gilded Age superstar. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks, I'll take you beyond the glitter and the gold to have a look at the style, architecture, history, and culture in America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. The great Madame Nordica, as she came to be known, actually came from the most modest of beginnings. Her life began in a rural New England farmhouse, yet included a remarkable career on the grandest opera stages of the Gilded Age and the Belle Epoque. She sang for Tsar Alexander II and became a sensation of the opera-mad audience in St. Petersburg, Russia. She had tea with Tolstoy while she was there. She went then headlong into the competitive opera houses of Italy and emerged victorious with perhaps the most passionate and opinionated opera audiences in the world. Furthermore, she conquered the most important stage of the late 19th century, that of Paris's Grand Palais Garnier, the Paris Opera. Her Americanism, and as some historical writers have remarked, her practical, direct New England sensibility allowed her to become more than just an opera singer, but a superstar who used her fame to appear in popular culture as one of the very first models for Coca-Cola. Instead of wearing the famed gowns by the Parisian fashion designers of the Gilded Age, such as Charles Worth, she insisted her gowns, after a certain point, be American-made. And she became a very public advocate for women's suffrage well before a vote for women was on the horizon. Lillian Allen Norton was born in December of 1857 in the rolling farmlands of western Maine in the town of Farmington. 
Farmington, incorporated in the late 18th century, was known in its early history for lumber mills, grist mills, and factories canning local corn and making cheese. And of course, there were all the orchards of the sweet Maine apples. Lillian's family were local farmers and had lived in the area for generations. Her family, as did many of the time, liked music, particularly from her father's fiddle, as well as enjoying the choir and the hymns sung at the local Methodist church. It's been said that for great musicians, the impulse comes from the soul, and indeed, perhaps it did for Lillian. As a small child, she was once found standing on a large, flat rock on the bank of a nearby creek, banging out time and rhythm with a stick and an old pan as an accompaniment to the water rushing by. Her family went looking for her and found her absorbed in her music-making because she was late for dinner. Family lore holds the story that when she was still very young, her mother took her to a woman of the town, long thought to have the ability to see the future and predict the destinies of Farmington folk who dared sit by her fire for a reading. Lillian's mother took her daughter to Aunt Eunice, as she was called, for a reading on the child's future. With mystical assurance, the reading came back. You will sail the seven seas, and the crowned heads of Europe will bow to you. And years later, Lillian Norton sailed those very seas, and indeed, the crowned heads did bow to her. It was Lillian's sister, Wilhelmina, that was meant to be the professional singer. Willie, Lillian's eldest sister, seemed to have the talent in the family as a singer, or at least one that showed the promise that was judged to be something that could be made into a career. The family left Farmington, moving to Boston, where Willie could begin her studies at the newly formed New England Conservatory of Music. European conservatories had long existed, but as America found its new cultural footing, musicians could, at least, finally begin at an American school. An unexpected surge of typhoid took Willie's life when she was just 16 years old, as her teachers were beginning to notice and develop her talent. Lillian had been imitating the scales and snippets of music her sister had been singing as she wandered around the house. In fact, at one point of great irony, Lillian was given a few pennies by her father not to sing. But unable to ignore her second daughter's seemingly natural ability, her mother brought her to Willie's old teacher at the conservatory. Lillian was taken immediately by Willie's old professor, John McNeil, who adhered to the old master techniques of pure Italian bel canto singing. At her audition with him, she hit an astonishing high C. She was 14 years old. Lillian was taken on by O'Neill, showed promise, and spent long hours studying, practicing, and observing. She simply seemed to absorb music. The New England Conservatory, its old original building still to be found at the end of a side street in downtown Boston, also housed the Music Hall, a grand auditorium where concerts and performances were held, and which was the original home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Lillian discovered a way to wedge herself between an iron grating in a balcony wall and watch performance after performance of the happenings on stage. Vocal training in the old Italian school allowed students to sing scales and scales only over and over and over for sometimes even years. 
The idea of singing an actual aria or even performing on stage was out of the question until a student was deemed ready by a professor. The idea was to produce as smooth and seamless a sound as possible, which the endless repetition of scales would make instinctive. When a student was ready, there remained few opportunities for young singers to perform outside of church choirs, women's organizations, gatherings, and private concerts, often in private homes. In her years later, thinking back on it all, Lillian is reported to have remarked, I have sung, perhaps, at more dedications of church steeples, vestry carpets, orphan asylums, and sewing circles than any other woman of my profession. Lillian's first professional engagement took place in 1874, which consisted of a performance of two short plays, with Lillian singing a musical interlude between them. For one of the plays, a plate of chicken drumsticks was meant to act as an onstage prop. For her performance, she was grateful for the pay of a dollar for her performance and one of the chicken drumsticks. For Lillian and her family, finances were extremely tight, and she often wandered the streets of downtown Boston on her lunch breaks, it's been reported, not being able to afford to eat and just window shopping. Another option for singers beginning to work professionally was to join a touring band. These bands, it's hard to call them orchestras, were usually led by a charismatic conductor and toured extensively crisscrossing America with its new and mostly efficient railway system. Tours often also included voyages and appearances in European cities. Lillian was introduced to Patrick Gilmore, whose traveling Gilmore's band was one of the most well-known in the post-Civil War years. Bands like Gilmore's presented military favorites as well as light classical repertoire. In fact, Gilmore himself presented the famed waltz king Johann Strauss in his only American appearances. While certainly not the stages of grand opera, Gilmore's band offered a chance for her to work and to be seen, although her conservatory professor scoffed at the idea of her singing with a brass band. Lillian's concert repertoire at this point included coloratura arias from Lucia de Lammermoor and La Sonambula, as well as heavier selections from Giuseppe Verdi's Il Trovatore and Ernani. Singing now on a regular basis in a variety of venues from proper concert halls, amusement parks, and armories, she began to get the experience of moving around on stage and being comfortable in front of an audience. Lillian claimed a certain amount of stage fright throughout her career, but she quickly would add, you need to make sure the audience never knows it. Her appearances with Gilmore gave her the opportunity to sing in New York at the Great Academy of Music, no less, where she was to make her American debut in staged opera in future years. Most importantly, the chance touring with Gilmore gave her the opportunity to travel to Europe. A young woman, and particularly one on the stage, would have traveled with her mother or other appropriate chaperone, and thus Amanda Norton, along with her daughter Lillian, found themselves in Paris. Paris, for anyone in those years of the early 1870s, was a city that was changing and evolving everywhere one looked. Following the Franco-Prussian War, the city was transforming itself into the stage set that was to become the spectacle of the Belle Epoque. For any singer, knowing that to sing grand opera, European study would be essential not only to perfect the style, but to become fluent in multiple languages and to find far more opportunities to perform in Europe than back home in America. 
America wanted only European stars for its stages, and to get the kind of experience and to develop the stamina performing lengthy operas, that was something that was only going to happen to American-born singers if they went to Europe. Lillian and her mother decided to drop out of Gilmore's tour and simply stay in Paris. With the opera world of Paris to conquer one way or another, it seemed best to be as close to it as possible. Lillian dug into her studies. Every day, up a narrow staircase, six flights she climbed to an unheated studio for training. She was taught and coached by the famous François Delsart, who taught his students dressed often in a tasseled cap and dressing gown. Delsart's teachings, not easily defined, consisted of a method meant to connect the performer's emotion to their physical movement for a more realistic character portrayal. The great Sarah Bernhardt was reported to be one of his students. His most well-known piece of advice was to, quote, There is no art like that of making people believe what you want them to, unquote. There was little time for fun, but Lillian was able to go up in a hot air balloon, ride around Paris, and visit the famed Meunier chocolate factory. Let's hope she got some free samples. And of course, when possible, she and her mother attended the great Paris opera itself. Lillian continued to prepare her repertoire and worked on learning and refining full operas, including Lucia, Traviata, Faust, and Aida. In addition to her daily lesson with Delsart, she had lessons in French as well as in acting and sessions with coaches and several hours a day of practice on her own. And something to eat. And then bed. Day after day. Delsart's health was frail and a heart attack ended her work with him. She was almost complete, but now on to Italy for finishing. Milan, the city of the great Italian opera house La Scala, had been the site of premieres of many operas by Donizetti and Bellini, including the great masterpiece Norma. Lillian began studies with another of the most famous teachers of the time, Antonio San Giovanni at the Conservatory of Milan. Upon being asked what she wanted to do in her first interview, Lillian simply stated, I want to sing grand opera. San Giovanni looked back at her and replied, well, then why don't you? It seemed Lillian was far more prepared for an international career than she thought. San Giovanni continued to prepare her repertoire of operas, but had one major element to change, her name. No one can pronounce your name in Italian. And even though American, when she returned to stages at home, audiences would want an Italian influence. Translating Lily into Italian after a flower and Italianizing her last name, Lillian Norton from Farmington, Maine, became Giglia Nordica, the Lily of the North. The practice was common among American and British singers. The bass, as a matter of fact, singing Mephistopheles in Faust at the opening night of the Metropolitan Opera in New York was billed as Franco Navarro. He was, in fact, the English-born Frank Nash. American audiences defined opera as Italian opera, and the early audiences at the Metropolitan Opera in New York demanded that all operas be sung in Italian, regardless of the languages in which they were originally written. Italian audiences were not only picky about their talent, they were opinionated and bloodthirsty in their passion. For a non-native-born singer to succeed in Italy proved the popular idea 
If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Opera houses weren't about to pay a singer to perform unless they were a proven talent, and the impresario knew that he could make money. New singers were forced into doing what was called provas, essentially performances for free, in which it was they who had to pay the opera house for the chance to perform. Lillian's debut took place in the spring of 1879 at Milan's Teatro Manzoni. Lillian's mother accompanied her to rehearsals, carefully guarding the heated bricks that she brought with her to warm Lillian's feet during rehearsal breaks. One of the most difficult and anxiety-provoking elements of living the life of a 19th-century opera singer was the constant fear of cold, respiratory infection, or more serious disease. Theaters, dressing rooms, even hotel rooms had shaky heating, if there was any at all, and often inescapable damp. For a singer where the health of the throat and chest determine whether one works or not, cold, damp, and illness were all constant sources of worry. At her debut, when she appeared to take her bow as Donna Elvira in Mozart's Don Giovanni, the audience had formed itself into a lather, notably for their utter dislike of the main soprano singing Donna Anna, and had in fact hissed that singer through the performance, and that turned into cries of basta, basta, enough, enough. In fact, three of the singers in that production had to be replaced. But the applause and cheering at the end was for Giglia Nordica, and that went unchallenged. She followed her success with further performances in Italy of Verdi's La Traviata, in which she received nine curtain calls, applause from the orchestra during her rehearsals, and even a band serenade outside her hotel room the next morning to convey the success of her appearances. Along with Italy, audiences in Russia, particularly in St. Petersburg, were passionate about their opera. Her success in Italy allowed her to travel on to Russia and sing in the Imperial Opera, including in the presence of Tsar Alexander II just eight days before his assassination in March of 1881. Here, she was entertained and treated as a true operatic star. She attended balls and receptions and was invited to the Grand Winter Palace and was entertained by Count and Countess Tolstoy. Her debut role was as the actress Féline in Amboise Thomas' opera Mignon, with its famous coloratura aria, Je suis Tatiana. Now, even though it's a scratchy recording made in 1911, we can today hear Lillian Nordica's voice singing the aria. <laughs> Conditions in the Russian theaters were luxurious compared with those in Italy. Costumes were elegant, stagings were glamorous. One of her entrances on stage took place astride a white horse attended by grooms. And then there were the banquets and dinners at which she was entertained with sumptuous food. 
at least for now, she never had to worry about cold feet. And speaking of feet, Lillian's costumes required equally elegant and exquisitely cobbled shoes. Typical stages were dusty and dirty places, often covered with soot and gunpowder from stage effects, all of which could destroy elegant footwear. Lillian went through four pairs of shoes a season. By now, news of Lillian's talent and stage personality was spreading. Her voice was strong, expertly trained, full of nuance, and audiences kept their eyes on her from her first moments on stage. She later noted how important making a stage entrance was to force the audience's attention. At last, the coveted invitation came to appear at the Paris Opera itself. A debut at the Paris Opera signaled that one had made it as a singer on the international market. Her debut role was as Marguerite in Faust by Charles Gounod, one of the most popular operas of the Gilded Age and Belle Epoque. Her debut took place on July 22, 1882. Star performers at the time often received gifts of flowers and often precious jewels from admirers, either publicly or privately. She received, among other gifts, a diamond ring with 80 diamonds from an unknown admirer. Her portrait was now commissioned, and Couturier's designed a new fashion accessory, a cape known as La Nordica. And so with that, we are going to take a brief break, and I'll be right back to continue our story. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today we are tracing the career of Lillian Nordica, soprano superstar of the Gilded Age. One of the most extraordinary things about the opera world in the last years of the 19th century was that a number of the composers of what we think of now as classic standard operas were alive, and these operas were in fact the new music. It was entirely possible for a celebrated singer to have a composer write an opera specifically for them, or to be coached personally by the composer on his intentions for a character, an aria, or a whole score. 
One day, Lillian found herself in a practice room at the Paris Opera running through sections of Faust before her debut. As she was singing, the door opened and an older man dressed all in black with a gray beard entered and listened to her sing. He listened, and when she was finished, he he asked her to sing something more. She sang the famous coloratura aria Caronome from Rigoletto by the then, perhaps the greatest Italian composer of the time, Giuseppe Verdi. The gentleman introduced himself then as, in fact, Giuseppe Verdi. He had, in fact, unbeknownst to her, heard her sing in a performance of his opera Rigoletto and found her remarkable. What had impressed him in Lillian's rendition of the aria from Rigoletto was that she sang it exactly as the score dictated, exactly as Verdi had written it. One of the customs of the day was for singers to embellish florid arias with vocal ornamentation to show off their own voices, and often the original aria got lost in the shuffle. Verdi was so taken with Lillian and her approach to the music that he went on to coach and work with her on his La Traviata, which became one of Lillian's most noted roles. News of her European successes was making its way back to America, and she was covered in all the New York newspapers, as well as the more local papers in her home state of Maine. Throughout her career, critics could be divided, as they can still be today. They were divided on her natural gifts, but one thing was clear. It was difficult to ignore her on stage. Ironically, it seems at times that her very countrymen could be the most challenging of critics. But one music professor that had heard her sing wrote back to the American press to sing her praises. Miss Norton's voice is a soprano of great range and power, and of a richness and quality probably not surpassed and scarcely equaled by that of any voice in Europe. It is simply indescribably magnificent. Her acting is good, graceful, and natural, and she throws her soul into her singing and acting so thoroughly so as at once to captivate every listener. She also dresses richly and in great taste. Lillian had been away from America for several years at this point, and she missed America, particularly New England, and the farmland and calming rivers of Maine. At one point, while she and her mother were living in Milan, in Italy, she asked a cook to find lobsters so she could have a taste of the great coastal cuisine Maine was and still is famous for. The cook returned, of course, with the only choice possible, smaller, tougher, less flavorful lobsters from the Adriatic. It would be a while before Lillian could have a real taste of home. Nordica's soul biographer Ira Glackens maintains that it was Lillian's New England soul that focused her and kept her grounded amidst the colliding music and social worlds in which she found herself in Europe. He conjures a particular image of Lillian riding, now in a coach attended by footmen by herself on her way to a session of coaching with the great composer Ambroise Thomas, being recognized by passersby in the street, wearing one of her now several diamond rings. And he notes, it must have been that down east equanimity that saved her. She was now in a world of demanding and competitive prima donnas who often would refuse to sing a performance for the most trivial and capricious of reasons. Lillian's deep work ethic guided her. Unless it was physically impossible, she always sang her scheduled performances. 
One night following a performance in Paris, Lillian received yet another gift from an admirer, a check for $10,000 from a man who did make himself known, Frederick Gower. He had been a newspaper reporter in Providence, Rhode Island, but now was the business manager for Alexander Graham Bell, a prestigious job and a man with a considerable amount of money in the bank. Lillian married him in 1883. Lillian, her new husband Frederick, and her mother returned to America in September of 1883. The three headed back home to Farmington, Maine, and the entire Norton family, and likely a substantial part of the town, turned out for what my own Maine family would have called a cousin party. Everyone to whom you are remotely related shows up ready to eat summer corn, grilled chicken and cornbread, blueberry and apple pies, and ketchup. And Lillian fit right back in. To some of them, she would always be Lily Norton, and they would forget her stage name. What was it again? Professionally, she was no longer Julia Nordica, but she was most often known as simply Madame Nordica. After all those years abroad, though, Lillian had a foreign air. Her clothes were, after all, mostly at that point from her Paris years. But she was still Lily. And there was now a brand new auditorium in Farmington. No more would she have to sing at the Methodist Church. Lillian's marriage to Fred Gower was a challenging one. He disapproved of her performing career, and in bursts of what seemed to be uncontrolled anger, even burned some of her gowns and her music. Lillian was pushed to the point of suing for divorce, a complicated choice for a public figure, particularly a woman, in the 1800s. The marriage was to end, as was Frederick's own life, in a curious and dramatic episode in 1885. Gower had taken an interest in aeronautics and had undertaken a solo hot air balloon crossing of the English Channel. Neither Gower nor the balloon arrived in France as planned, and his presumed death, a disappearance, remains unsolved to this day. Was his death faked? Was it really an accident? Had he taken his own life as a result of mounting debts? No one knew for sure, including Lillian, who was now a widow. Lillian married two more times, and none of her marriages were successful. Her second husband was a Hungarian tenor, and again, she this time finalized a divorce. Her third husband was the American banker George Washington Young, and again, though challenging, she remained with him until her own untimely death. By the 1890s, Lillian's star had unquestionably risen. She had made her American operatic debut again as Marguerite and Faust at the famed Academy of Music in New York, and she had finally debuted at the new Metropolitan Opera in Meyerbeer's opera Les Huguenots in 1891. Perhaps one of the most symbolic moments for her was in 1909 when she returned to Boston and sang in the opening night performance of the newly built Boston Opera House, performing the title role of La Gioconda. Again, a collection of rare early recordings exists to this day to give us a sense of Nordica in the role.
Although she had sung professionally in Boston in previous years, to inaugurate Boston's newest temple to art was a significant symbol. Boston's great new opera house was located only a few streets away from the brownstone where she had once struggled in near poverty with her family. Lillian Norton, as Madame Nordica, had come home in triumph. In the early years of the 20th century, the roles of German composer Richard Wagner had become staples of her repertoire. Beginning in the middle of the 19th century, Richard Wagner had evolved opera from the overly romantic vocal showcases of the 19th century into serious music dramas with rich orchestrations, compelling characters, even if mythological, and roles for only the strongest and most intensive singers. Wagner himself had died in 1883, but his widow, taking a keen interest in Lillian's unique talent, personally coached her in her husband's work. Lillian Nordica became the most sought-after Wagnerian soprano of the early 20th century, her voice uniquely capable of handling the power of the roles. When Lillian was spending some time in London, she became passionate about the work of British suffragist Emmeline Parkhurst and took up the cause herself, using her fame to support the cause. She is quoted as proclaiming, Many a man has fought and gone to prison for his principles, and I think no great reform has been brought about without there being those willing to cast themselves into the breach and fight. It is all very well for those in power to keep on their way, ignoring us. We have to draw attention to ourselves. As the first decade of the 20th century ended, she combined singing at benefit performances for the suffrage cause with her operatic and concert engagements. In 1912, she sang the national anthem in a pageant supporting women's suffrage held on the stage of New York's Metropolitan Opera House, which included President Theodore Roosevelt as a speaker. She had also spoken out in San Francisco from the back of an open streetcar in between two concerts she gave in 1911, supporting the women's movement. Other comments she made reinforced and clarified her mission for equal pay for equal work, not only in the music world, but in all industries and for all work. In 1913, Lillian set off on a long and physically challenging concert tour that included the Pacific Coast, Hawaii, and Australia. As her ship, the Tasman, hit a coral reef off the coast of Queensland, Australia, it ran aground and was stranded for three days. During the time, the 56-year-old Lillian became seriously ill with hypothermia and pneumonia. She was brought ashore, and while resting in a hospital on the mainland, she met a young American boy from San Francisco who had been traveling with a boys club and was also in the hospital. Lillian befriended the small boy so far from home and his parents and would sing to him to help comfort him. To him, of course, she wasn't the world-famous Madame Nordica. She was just Lily. When he passed away, she made sure a proper gravestone was erected to honor his life. The inscription read, in memory of my little American friend, George MacDonald, who died February 13, 1914, far away from home, from his countrywoman, Lillian Nordica. Lillian herself needed further recovery, and she was transferred to another hospital in what is now Jakarta, Indonesia. Her heart began to fail, and Lillian Norton, Madame Nordica, passed away on May 10, 1914. 
The legacy she left was that of a brilliant operatic career that came out of a natural talent, determination, very, very hard work, and the grueling realities of constant travel and health concerns in a world without modern transportation and antibiotics. Despite the gowns and the jewels, Madame Nordica never stopped being Lily Norton. Her homestead, where she grew up, still stands where it always has, and is open today as a museum in Farmington, Maine. A visit will show you the most modest, but still musical home where she spent her first years and some of her costumes and articles from her life. It seems, in some ways, that Lillian never left Farmington. The spirit of her home sustained her through a glamorous career, tragic marriages, and the hard work and the loneliness. You can hear talks and concerts today in the Nordica Auditorium at the University of Maine where Lillian once sang herself. As perhaps evidence that she deeply loved her Maine roots and New England spirit, it's said that her ghost can still appear from time to time on the auditorium stage. Lillian had said, when asked by the press at one point about her wishes for her funeral, she summed it all up with her clear main spirit and New England matter-of-factness, and she said, I want them to say, she did her damnedest. And I think that when we look back at her life today, it's pretty clear that she did. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited by Kieran Gannon. I invite you to be a patron of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me conduct the research, devote time to the writing, and subsidizes the studio costs of producing the show. I truly couldn't continue the show without the support of you, my patrons. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability.